Right, so it's verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, so we'll start from verse 19, but let's just come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that through your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you provide the resources that we need to enable us to live for you and to know you in every circumstance of life. Lord, we pray, give us a deeper understanding of that tonight through your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to start just now with a, a wee bit of a film clip just to introduce what I'm going to say. Right, okay. <laughs> That's, I suppose, the, the kind of funny side of being fearful, though I'm concerned about one or two of those parents there, but who knows what was done to them before. But that's the funny side of feeling maybe a little bit weak and powerless. But as many of us know, there's also a side to this that's not so funny, in fact, that's not funny at all. And that's really where I want to begin tonight, if you like, by looking at how we feel right now, tonight, in this world, as people who know Jesus, the majority of us. How do we feel? How do you feel? Well, forgive me if I'm generalizing and pushing my thoughts onto you, but increasingly, I get the sense that, that many Christians, that more and more Christians, are feeling powerless, are feeling increasingly marginalized and even fearful in the face of the tide of a society that has turned so decisively and even aggressively against morals and standards that have been seen as the norm in this country, not just for hundreds, but for thousands of years politicians, the media, the opinion makers in different ways in our society are working hard and are succeeding at turning the moral framework of this country almost on its head. Right and wrong are now almost obsolete concepts in any kind of absolute sense. Now it's a matter of be and do whatever you feel, whatever makes you happy, do that. Now, the consequences of all this on society, what actually happens when what makes me happy leads to chaos and pain for other people, hasn't, I believe, been faced up to and certainly hasn't been thought through. But this does scare many of us, just where we're going as a society, what kind of future that we'll have and even more our children and grandchildren, what are they facing? And we do feel powerless, for this is the way society is being brainwashed into going. So even to question the direction in which we're going in the politest way possible that we can possibly manage sees you labelled today as an intolerant bigot. You know, it's a funny kind of tolerance where you cannot allow somebody 
to respectfully have a different opinion. You know, that is tolerance as it's never been known before. That is tolerance twisted and redefined. But here, just to mention, are a few examples out of an almost innumerable array of choices of what actually is going on around us. The first one is, is a kind of big picture one. That is that Wilton Park, an executive agency of the Foreign Office, recently issued a report that branded Christianity as the enemy of LGBTI. This report called for state funding to reinterpret the Bible to make it compatible with LBG, whatever it is, ideology. And it further called for this new belief system to then be required teaching in all churches, Sunday schools, Bible colleges, Christian training establishments, etc. Now, I want to say, just to balance this, that this is just a report. And governments get reports from all sorts of agencies on a whole wide range of issues, which often are very quickly rejected and ignored. But, you know, even so, to think that any government agency would write a report with those kind of recommendations, that is scary. And I would suggest to you, even 10 years ago, would have been unthinkable, unimaginable. Then we have some smaller scale examples of the direction of travel in our world. Just recently, National Trust volunteers at Felbrig Hall, a National Trust property, were told to wear a gay pride badge or lanyard, or they would be barred from meeting the public and put on office duties. Now, all this is because the, the previous owner, a long time ago of this property, Robert Wyndon Ketton Kremer, because he'd been a homosexual man. But, you know, everyone who knew him or had known him said that he would have been appalled by this, that he was a very quiet, private man. Now, you see, the National Trust, in the light of protests, backed down on this. But, you know, what's scary is that they ever imagined that they had the right to intervene in this kind of way. The National Trust was set up to safeguard buildings and gardens, etc., of national interest. But politics and attempts to mould national morality certainly are not within their remit. Finally, just during this week, I read a, a story. It's from the United States, but I know that I could have found examples from our own country of a woman, Tristan Reese, who became through hormone therapy a transgender man, complete with beard, but who's now having a baby with a partner, Bill Chaplow. You know, actually bearing a baby, that got my mind whirling. You know, this, this world is confusing and scary. And we do feel weak and we do feel powerless in face of this society that's turned its back on God and that increasingly aggressively is turning against the people of God, against the church. But please, I would say to you, be clear. The situation that we are in is tough. It is. But it is by no means unique. For the Christians that Paul writes to here in Ephesus, who are certainly representative of the other New Testament churches, 
They knew what it was like to live in the context of a hostile, aggressive, anti-God, anti-church society. Whatever we face or fear we will have to face in the future, it is kid-glove stuff compared to what those first Christians had to face from that mighty, all-powerful Roman Empire. Well, Acts 19 tells us that there was a riot in the very city of Ephesus, a riot against the church because the silversmiths there were enraged at the impact Christians in the growing church were having on their sales of silver idols. So there can be no question that people who became Christians in Ephesus, that they faced intense persecution. They would lose family connections, friends, they'd lose their position in society. Many of them would lose their jobs with the income that brought. Hebrews 10, 33 and 34 gives us a, a bit of an insight into something of what these Christians regularly face. It says there, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. You sympathize with those, who, those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. With all of this being just a prelude to the terrible suffering, to the very point of martyrdom that would be faced by many in that early church soon after. So you see, if we think we have reason to feel scared, weak, and powerless in the face of the direction our society is going in, then believe me, those Ephesian Christians had far more. And you see, Paul knows this. He knows what these Christians are facing. He knows what they're feeling. Which leads him then here to write these verses, to pray for them as here he does. So let's move on then with Paul from how we feel in the world, powerless, to what we are in Christ, powerful. So verse 19, which speaks of how incomparably great His power is for those who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength. Now, what's not immediately obvious in our English translations is that Paul uses Four different Greek words for power in this short verse. He's really piling it on here in order to emphasize just the limitless nature and the extent of God's power. The first of these words is, is found in the phrase there, his incomparably great power. For the word that's translated power there is the Greek word Dunamis, the word from which our English word dynamite has since evolved. Now, we shouldn't read back into this in the sense of concluding that this means that the power that God gives us is instantaneous and, and explosive. Uh, don't read dynamite qualities of that kind into this, because this wasn't in Paul's mind. For dynamite as such wasn't invented until at least a thousand years after Paul wrote this letter. Rather, the thinking behind this Greek word, and that's what influenced our English word, is of power that acts. 
It's a power that has the capability to act. And you see, when you put incomparably great before this, well, then you get the idea that what Paul is saying is that, that God has the capacity to act in power in ways that are far, far beyond our understanding. The second power-related word here isn't quite so easy to pick out as it's translated into English by the word working, the working of his mighty strength. Now, now this word is the word energia, from which we get our word energy. And what this does, what this word does, is it stresses the active nature, the active nature of God's power. And almost exclusively, when this word is used, and when certainly it's used by Paul in relation to supernatural powers, as it is here, what Paul is saying then is that God is actively at work. That God is always ready to work in supernatural power to an extent that is beyond our understanding in the life of his church, in the lives of his people. The next word here, power word, is the word mighty. The working of his mighty strength. Now, the Greek word behind that word is the word kratos. And this is a word that finds its place in the English language in words like theocracy. You know, the, the rule of the people. Like autocracy, absolute rule, democracy, the rule of the people. The idea here then is of a power that rules, a power that reigns, a power that is sovereign over all else. A power that nothing, no one can stand against or resist. And this is God's power when it's exercised. Finally, here comes the word strength, iscus, which basically means, just as Ali, what it says. It means strength. It means it's emphasizing that God is the strong one. Now, those who understand the technicalities of language far better than me, they suggest here that, that dunamis, that word for almighty power, that power that acts, they suggest that this is the main general word here. And that all these other words that Paul uses really are opening up. These words are illustrating different aspects and attributes of this power. And one writer, Harold Honer, he puts all of this together and he illustrates it for us in this way. This is what he says. A bulldozer has the ability, capacity, and potential to root out trees. That's dunamis. As you look at it, you sense its inherent strength. That's iscus. But when its engine roars and it begins to move, its power of mastery becomes obvious. Kratos. However, when it comes to a tree and then knocks it over, it's then that you see the activity of its power. Energia. So basically then, using Hona's illustration, basically what Paul's telling us here in this verse is that as God wills, that he has the power to rip up trees. In our lives, in our church life, 
in our society, in our culture. Problems and difficulties, attitudes and philosophies and whatever else. Things that we think are unconquerable, insurmountable. God can deal with by his sovereign, almighty power. So you see, we feel weak. We feel powerless as we look at our world and as we look at ourselves. But Paul says, don't do that, or at least don't stop with that. Instead, go on, look to God, remember who your God is, and be afraid no more. Feel weak and powerless no more for your God. You who trust in Him, who believe in Him, your God is a mighty, sovereign, all-powerful God who is ready to act on behalf of His people. So how we feel in this world, powerless. What we are in Christ, powerful. Finally here, Paul encourages these Christians and us to remember what he's done, what God has done and will do in Christ. That so we might be able then to trust him as we face challenges and uncertainty in the present. As we remember that because of what he's done, this is what is ours. Because of what he's done, this is the power that is available to us. First, the power of the risen Christ. Verse 19 and 20 it says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see, for, for many people, life's greatest challenge and life's greatest source of fear that of which we feel powerless in the face of, and rightly so, because we are powerless in the face of death. So people today, because of our growing faithlessness as a society, are often terrified in the face of death. They spend their lives trying to ignore its inevitability. They surround themselves with material things. They gorge themselves on pleasure in a vain attempt to convince themselves of their immortality, in a vain attempt to hide from that inevitability of death. But listen, unless Jesus Christ comes back before we die, we're all going to face death. Death is going to overcome us all. And the only one who can overcome death, the only one who has the power to overcome death, is God. And he did that supremely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you see, in the resurrection, God did more than just reverse the process of death. He did more. That's what he did for Lazarus. That's what happens in other biblical accounts of resurrections. But God did so much more in the resurrection of Jesus. As John Stott puts it, he raised Jesus to an altogether new life. Immortal, glorious, and free. 
which nobody had ever experienced before and which nobody has experienced since. Or not yet. And you know, nobody has ever been able to give a credible alternative to the central truth of the Christian faith. All who attack the the Christian faith, Richard Dawkins and all his cohorts, all the new atheists, they've never been able to offer a credible alternative to the empty tomb. Something that's more compelling and convincing than that simple biblical teaching that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. For you see, nothing else explains the transformation of the first disciples from men and women who are hiding away from Jews and Romans because they were terrified and afraid. Nothing else explains that transformation into a church that was ready to die for their faith and that took the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Nothing else explains this other than the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the almighty power of God. And that God then filled his people with something of that same mighty power by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you see, what Paul's telling us here is that we too, in the face of the trials and challenges that we face in life, we too have the God of resurrection power on our side. And at the right time, He will act in power. He will deliver us. He will rescue us. So when you're tempted to feel weak and powerless, when you begin to feel that as the church we're weak and powerless and you're afraid, then remember that. Remember who is on your side, on our side. Remember what he's done. But what he's done and what is ours because of that doesn't finish there. Because Paul also goes on to tell us that in addition, we also have available to us the power of the ascended Christ. Verse 20 and 21 goes on and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now that opening statement there is an obvious reference to to Psalm 110 verse 1, where we read that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. For my feet. And, and you know, this is a verse that the New Testament writers that they saw as so essential to our understanding of Christ that it's actually referred to on at least 30 different occasions in the New Testament. And of course, we understand this as being a verse where the psalmist David was prophetically there looking forward to the coming of Christ. The Lord, that is God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You see, we, with our understanding of the Trinity, with our understanding of one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can understand what David's saying here as he looks forward to the coming of his descendant, Jesus Christ. Think of what a mystery 
But this was and is to the Jews. With their rejection of the Trinity, their rejection of Christ as God. Think of the mystery to them. God says to my God, sit at my right hand. But of course, the significance of this is that the the right hand is the place of supreme honor and authority. Because you see, all who trust in Christ, all of us, one day, we'll all be in the heavenly realms that are referred to here. We'll be there with Him. And all the heavenly hosts, they'll all be there too. They'll be there with us in those heavenly realms. But only one will be at God's right hand. Only one will, as God, sit with the Father, enthroned in majesty and power. But who does he reign over? Who does he exercise his authority over? Well, of course, over all. The words all and every figure in these verses. But at the same time, I I do believe that there is an emphasis here on evil powers, on spiritual forces of wickedness. I believe that's what Paul is getting at when he talks here of far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Because, you see, this is something he develops later on in Ephesians, isn't it? In Ephesians 6.12, that famous verse where he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Christ then, we're told, Christ reigns. Christ has sovereign authority over all the powers of darkness and evil. Now, of course, in this world at times, we seem to be surrounded, don't we, by the powers of evil. And evil does at times seem to us to be so very powerful as we cannot stand against it. It seems sometimes as if nothing can stand in the way of the advance of evil. But listen, this is the reality. This is the reality. The forces of evil with their weapons of sin and death were defeated ultimately at the cross of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. For at the cross... Jesus paid the price of sin. By his resurrection, Jesus broke the power of death. So you see, all we're witnessing now of the power of evil, all of this, this is just the death throes of a mortally wounded, a defeated enemy. God in Jesus Christ has won the victory over evil. He is and he has always been sovereign in his authority over evil. And one day when Jesus Christ returns, that victory will be consummated, finally seen and known and experienced by all of mankind, by all creation. And this power, this power of the ascended Christ, his sovereign power and authority, This power is ours as his church, as his people, right here, right now. So you see, when we look around us and it seems as if the powers of evil are unstoppable, 
when we look around us and we're afraid for ourselves, afraid for our children, afraid for the future, when we feel powerless in the face of a society that seems increasingly determined to reject God and anything to do with God, when this is how you feel, remember that we have the power of the ascended Christ on our side. That our God has won the victory. The evil, though in this world it might hit hard and look so strong, yet evil will never win the victory. And that one day, the completeness of Christ's victory will be seen by all. All mankind. And you know, it's an interesting fact that there have been a number of occasions, a number of times in world history, when it seemed as if evil regimes were about to achieve world domination. And then suddenly, and at times inexplicably, it's all fallen apart. I mean, think of the, the Second World War. After Dunkirk, it was far easier for Hitler to win the war than it was to lose it. But then he made a series of crazy, irrational decisions that set in motion the events that led to his ultimate downfall. And just recently I've been reading a book about Attila the Hun. They say that what you choose for your bedtime reading says a lot about somebody. But anyway, during his lifetime, Attila the Hun was known as the scourge of God. It seemed as if he was about to destroy the, the civilized world and destroy Christianity in the process. But then, suddenly, he died. And within a few short years, his empire fell apart. I tell you, evil will never be ultimately victorious. It can go so far, but our God is sovereign. And by faith, we share in his sovereign power, the power of the ascended Christ. Finally, we share in the power of the reigning Christ. Verse 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now there's one sense in which what we're looking at here is really an extension of what we've just covered. Ascended Christ, reigning Christ, there's a lot of crossover there. But there's also more here. What's said here does take things on. For you see, following Paul's opening statement in these verses, that God has placed all things under Christ's feet, that he's head over everything, as comprehensive a statement as you could ask for, of his power and authority, Paul then goes on to relate this to the church. The church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, you know, it's interesting that, that Paul's actually the only biblical author who uses the image of the church as the body of Christ. Nobody else speaks in that way. And Sinclair Ferguson makes an interesting suggestion that this was perhaps a concept that developed in Paul's mind from his experience on the Damascus Road. Remember when that this persecutor of the church was challenged by the Lord, Acts 9 verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
It was the church that was persecuting. But Jesus said, why do you persecute me? But anyway, Paul uses this expression to express the intimate relationship there is between Christ and his church. That we are his body here on earth. That God chooses primarily to work through us now as his people. But then Paul goes on to speak of the church as the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now you see elsewhere in Colossians 1.19, it speaks in terms there of how God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. So you see, put all that together. And what we then have is that Christ is filled, filled with the power, the authority, the glory of God. He is filled, and he then, in turn, fills his church, fills us, is ready to fill us with the same power, the same glory, the same authority. Now, here some of us might want to object, but you know, I don't feel as if I'm filled in that way. I don't feel that I've experienced God at work in my life in that kind of way. I just want to make two comments in response to that. First, I believe that's the potential that we have. But we've got to step out in faith. We've got to obey God and we've got to get into the battle before that potential will be released and realized in us. Second, and this kind of ties in with that, when the need is greatest, when the battle is fiercest, when then God's people, His church, turn to Him at that point, then He will fill them in a way He never has before, with His power and glory and authority. Paul's message then to the Ephesians was you're not weak. You're not powerless. So do not be afraid. Have faith. Trust in me. Paul's message to us here today remains exactly the same. It's unchanged. So in these challenging days, Let's believe it. Let's have faith. And let's keep on trusting in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank You for the wonder of Your power and glory and of the wonder of the love that You have for us and Your desire to use us as Your people. Lord, we love You. We praise You. But we're amazed at how much You love us. Help us again to give ourselves afresh to you. Lord, reveal your glory in your church in these dark days, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.